Welcome to the Tiny Logic Podcast, where we have conversations with those on the front lines of the tiny house revolution. My name is Adam Garrett Clark. In 2015, I created a $300 a month housing opportunity for myself and five other friends in an off-grid tiny home community in Oakland, California. Since then, tiny homes have taken over my life. This show is for the tiny converted, the talk shop and get us all housed. You can find more information about the work of Tiny Logic at tinylogic.ninja. My guest today really doesn't need an introduction. She is, at this point, really a local legend in Oakland activism lore. I'm talking about Nita B, a.k.a. the Olympia Lady. Nita B has deep roots in Oakland activism, which we dig into in this interview, but she's probably best known as one of the lead organizers for The Village, a tiny home community that popped up in a public park in January of 2017 to create homes for homeless folks, and then was dramatically shut down two weeks later by the city of Oakland. That action and its shutdown really seemed to crystallize in stark terms the essence of the the housing crisis and it galvanized the local movement for homes for all and in a more focused set of confrontational actions in the years that followed and if if you've been following the politics of this then this is pretty obvious but i'll say it nita b has been instrumental in where we are currently in the negotiations for basic human rights to all people of oakland she She'd be the first to point out that we are nowhere near where we need to be on this, but I really wonder where we would be on this trajectory if need to be didn't exist. Part of her secret sauce, in my opinion, is she has this bottomless depth of passion and energy and voice and fight and that she just comes in consistently and pummels and holds the city's power structures to account. And you get a sense in this interview that that ability to struggle comes at a cost, but but also that it's a necessary ingredient toward getting the goods, as she would say. So this interview was really fun for me to listen back to right now. We recorded it in the late summer of 2019, but the themes and takeaways that we touch on are deeply relevant to the moment we are in, and unfortunately will likely remain evergreen for some time. I do apologize. I've made you work for it. Um, You're going to have to listen to the whole hour and 30 minutes um, because some of the best insights of this interview come at the end. Uh, so you'll re- really need to stick through it. Um, I, I, I had to indulge some of my selfish uh, curiosities about the history, the specific history of our of the land where our tiny home community is, uh, because I, I discovered that she happened to know that history when, when we did the interview there. Um, and real quick for um, updates on our fight to stay in existence, um, check out neighborship.org. All right. Enjoy. So I wanted to start um, way back because I know of you from the news, uh, from meetings that I've been to. And I think a lot of people, anybody who is happening to listen to this probably knows a bit about you from from that vantage point. But I'm curious about where 
this all started for you, where you got that click in your head that I want to work with people living on the streets? Um, it started when I was a little kid. Um, and I've been doing social justice probably since I was a child. I just didn't know that it was called social justice. But in terms of like homelessness, um, my mom was really active in our church and she would force all of her children to be active in the church. <laughs> and so I landed on working with homeless folks in Skid Row, actually, as a child, providing meals, hot meals. In L.A.? In Los Angeles. I'm from Los Angeles. I was born in Los Angeles. Okay. But been in Oakland most of my life. Um, but this latest kind of reiteration of... And then, well, in the... In my 20s and throughout my 30s, I was a teacher. I also had an after-school program. Um, it was called Mandela Arts Center. Um, later the youth changed the name of it to Rapparation Records, but it was the first hip hop after school center in, I th it might've been the whole freaking world. Wow. Actually. Where was this? In Oakland? It was in West Oakland, right behind the West Oakland BART. And then Whoa. we moved to downtown Oakland and then we, um, shut down. What year was, what time period was this? Nineties? Late nineties, early two thousands. Wow. Yeah. Cool. And, um. So in, but I also taught in like the school districts, but in that after school program, just organically half of the kids that were in the program were homeless, like by themselves homeless. So historically since the eighties, since the crack epidemic, Oakland has had the largest homeless youth population in the entire country. I didn't know that. So we've always had a homeless youth problem, um, since the eighties and, um, so I was by not by choice, but just by circumstance, working with homeless youth throughout my 20s and early 30s. And then a few years ago, as this housing crisis hit Oakland, I couldn't get over this, the, the, the number of homeless encampments. Like homeless encampments that had been around forever were like huge. And then there were homeless encampments that there never had been before. And I just couldn't it just bothered me and um, I'm a caterer by trade um, that's probably like I've had a catering business for 30 years now and um, the lumpia lady right that's what people call me the <laughs> lumpia lady um, and so my daughter was like well mom why don't you feed folks and I was like girl they're not hungry they're homeless don't mix the two up and she's like well at least it's something at least they know people care about them and I'm like you're right and so it just started as like an act of kindness to the homeless folks in our neighborhood, Funktown at the time. And it was me, my daughter, and my homie um, hit the streets. And within seven months, it was like 75 of my homies. And we were hitting all over Oakland. And the work very quickly became not just serving hot meals, but building personal relationships with people, providing provisions, whether that's tents or sewing up tents. Sometimes we were just sewing up tents, duct taping tents. Wow. You know, um, getting people tarps, taking people to their doctor's appointments, sitting in them with their doctor's appointments to make sure that they actually got the service that they deserved rather than being ignored, which happens to a lot of unhoused folks. Um, getting them to their court cases, sitting them, sitting with them during their court cases, just whatever people needed, we just would just show up and do it. And then after doing that for a year, from January to December of 2016, um, a lot of, you know, me and my friends are social activists. We've 
been to City Hall. We've sat on policy boards. We've sat in budget meetings. We've organized. We've protested. We just knew. And a lot of us were involved with anti-gentrification work and tenants' rights work and just knew that the city, there was no political will to actually deal with this homeless crisis that was created by gentrification. And that there was no political will to shift that agenda to start developing for the town. And so we took it upon ourselves to be like, fuck it, we're going to build houses for people since the city won't. And this is the the beginning this of the village. The village. Yes. And so <clears throat> I remember hearing about it. I think I heard about it right before you got shut down. Well, it was up It was up for two weeks, the right? The first one was up for two weeks. Yeah. And so what? how did you find the site is my first <laughs> question. And how did you get... Like, how did this plan, I'm curious, like, how did the plan, before it happened, how, how did the idea formulate and get, get kind of set in motion? So the idea started, we were out in December 2016 on the coldest night of the year. And every encampment we went in, folks were sick with pneumonia or in the hospital sick. They weren't even in their encampments. And after going to encampment after encampment after encampment in freezing cold weather and finding our, our people sick, you know, because of their conditions, mm-hmm. that's what, like right there on the streets, we're like, fuck it, we're going to build houses because the city isn't, and this is just getting worse. This was 2000, the winter of 2016? December 2016. Was, this a, was that a, a really wet one? I can't remember that It was one. a really cold one. It was a cold one. Oh, I It do, was cold as fuck. I do remember that winter. It was yeah. so cold. And it was just like, we couldn't, I mean, at the time I was housed, I'm currently unhoused, but at the time, you know, I was precariously housed in a really s- fucked up unit, just so I wouldn't have to be on the streets. Mm-hmm. But at least I had a roof over my head, and even though it flooded, you know, it was a roof. Dang. <laughs> it flooded? Yeah, uh, it flooded constantly. It flooded when the landlady turned on her shower upstairs. It flooded when people turned on the, the laundry machine. It flooded when people, it just flooded. The house, the, the basement we were in just constantly flooded. Wow. And I was paying $1,000 a month for half of a basement. That's nuts. For five years. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts, but it, was, it wasn't the streets. And you said, just so, quick side uh-huh. note, you said that you, you spent, what, like 60 grand? Oh, yeah, when that. I actually did the math of paying this woman $1,000 a month for five years straight, I gave her $60,000 of my hard-earned money. Which is a great down payment for, for a house. Land or, or yeah. house. Yeah. And that like, and then she had the audacity to never fix the apartment, and then to want to raise the rent to two thousand a month, and because uh-huh. she, she knew she could. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, so you were so you were saying so you were you were housed. People were you were noticing everybody was coming down sick. with pneumonia and, and sickness, yeah. and or in the hospital sick, and we're like, and that the city wasn't going to do anything, um, so we just took it upon ourselves, and we looked at. Um, public lands and private lands. We were looking for specific things like, you know, water lines and electrical lines, something that was spacious, something that was near a lot of the encampments that we provided a lot of the, the advocacy and services at. And so the day we met to look at the land, none of us could find lands that we were really, we really felt were the land. And so we were looking th- over the list in the rain, sitting under a bridge under in the rain it at um 36th and mlk okay and so we're sitting in a car in the pouring rain looking through these lists being like none of these work what are we gonna do and then i look to the right and i'm like this is marcus garvey park i'm like no one uses marcus garvey park 
people use Marcus Garvey Park to to shoot up. And then I noticed that they changed the sign to Marcus Garvey Park to name it after the freeway. And so I did some, so we're like, actually, maybe we should take this land. This is this is actually it. This is the land. <laughs> it was an unused park. So I used to live over on 36th and West and, um, you know, would take my kids to the park, which didn't work. The bathroom didn't work. And this is when my kids were little. So the bathroom didn't work. The play structures were broken half the time. Everybody used the park to shoot up. So, and it was still in the same condition, like decades later, the same condition of not being used. It was unkept. There was trash everywhere. There were needles everywhere. The grass hadn't been mown in forever. Because the grass hadn't been mown and the trash hadn't picked up, there was like the this, the drainage system. When it rained, the entire park would flood. Um, and the sewage system was backed up too. So it just was totally unmaintained. So we made a f- call to to the city, and the bathroom had been broken for more than 20 years. And it had been turned into a place where people were just shitting everywhere. Like, there was shit all over the, the floor, and there were needles all over the floor. So we made a call to um, Park and Rex. We're like, hey, do you know the condition of, you know, Marcus Garvey Park and um, – what's going on with that they're like yeah we just don't have the money to fix it i said well you're gonna d- demolish at least the bathrooms because it's a health hazard we don't have money to m- demolish it so you're just gonna leave it the way it is and we're like we don't yet because there's nothing else we can do and so um and then in addition to that we did some parcel lands and it turned out so all that street used to be called grove street and it was all black owned homes that the state enacted eminent domain on those homes and took all those black owned homes to build that freeway overpass classic story right and so black folks lost their homes but the city or the state somebody never reparceled the land so what we also found out is that park at the time did not have a parcel number no one technically owned it the state owned the freeway above it the feds owned one of the freeways above it but the actual land no one parceled there was no number there was a parcel number to the the part of the park on the other side and there was a parcel number to the piece of land across from the park but the actual park that we were going to take care of that we were going to you know liberate had no parcel number that's very interesting which was awesome but then when we made light of this after the city you know kicked us off all of a sudden the parcel number showed up Uh. but we had made several calls to the county assessors they're like this is so weird there's no number for that (laughs) right and then while after we took off the land we also asked asked again the condition of the park and what they were going to do about it they weren't going to do anything. So that's how we found, figured out what the land was. Wow. We just were sitting in front of it. That's, <laughs> that's a great story. That's great. And so, and then, so you guys decide on the land and you already, how did you, how did you figure out who was going to move in? How did you figure out where you're going to put these units? how did you figure out what units you're going to build? And, um, and just kind of the whole setup, like, and, and what was your plan? What was your thinking about like how long you were going to be able to hold that space? I don't, I don't assume, I'm guessing that you didn't think that it was going to be shut down two weeks later. No, I thought it was going to be shut down by the next Monday. I thought we'd last the weekend and then we'd be down. Okay. I mean, it started off as a direct action. We wanted to shame the government for their lack of response to the crisis. Um, we wanted to shed light on what was happening we wanted to bring up this narrative of like this 
homelessness crisis is related to gentrification. It's the fruit of gentrification, that there was a lack of political will in the government to take care of working class black and brown folks and lower and no income black and brown folks here in Oakland. Um, So it was a political statement. So, you know, when we were there a week later, we were like, holy shit, we're still here. How did we, and then two weeks later, we're like, holy shit, we're still here. But by then, by then, it had evolved into something far bigger than a direct action. It had really, like, taken on, like, a movement almost. Um, it activated homeless folks. It activated housed folks to do something and want to do something. And um, it was really beautiful, actually. Um, how did we figure out what we were going to build? So in the place that I was renting, the basement, there was a little backyard area. And we designed the houses in that backyard area. And that area was literally like 10 feet by 8 feet. And that's where the houses were pre-constructed. We pre-constructed three houses. They were made of pallets, right? They were made out of pallets. Um, out of all of the homies, one person was a builder. <laughs> the rest of us had no fucking clue what we were doing. The idea was like, okay, we know about IKEA furniture. Let's make IKEA houses. That's literally the idea. Which is like, very, very forward thinking. I think, in fact, IKEA is actually working on that. And it's just say. like you know, none of us know how to fucking use a hammer, but we can figure out IKEA furniture. So let's figure out. Let's pretend these houses are like IKEA furnitures, and that's how it came about of just trying to piece together stuff. Literally, just fitting it together within a space, which ended up turning out to be the actual legal space for for a tiny home a tiny home well, under 120 square feet yeah. you're talking about yeah so those pieces were put into a u-haul and so we decided the day we were going to do this was when trump would get inaugurated for a few reasons one symbolically to be like you know to make the tie that the local government and the federal government in our eyes were illegitimate and ineffective um that would doesn't matter what you're talking about dc or oakland same kind of shit and then also because there were so many protests that we would be totally off the radar. Mm, right? Interesting. So that was what we landed on. And it was funny because, you know, it was raining. It was raining. That What ended up hiding us was the rain. Because mm. um, nobody was out. The cops weren't even out. It was raining so hard. And then when the cops did finally show up around dawn, they were like, what are you guys doing? And one of the homies was like, we're um, doing a homeless day of outreach <laughs> which we were and they're like oh okay and left us alone wow okay so you you planned out you kind of did some pre-building pre-planning and then did like a blitz at night mm-hmm. to do a setup in the middle of the night in the rain very strategic and then <coughs> who we picked is just um we all let people self-select we told folks what we wanted to do do mm-hmm. they think it was a good idea okay if you think it's a good idea you guys want to be part of it and the thing we had an overwhelming response of folks who wanted to do it Mm. and then reality hit which was like a lesson for us too of like you know this you know doing i always say that living being homeless and surviving um and doing a direct action are very it's a very fine line between the two because you know basically homeless people are doing direct actions every day right right um but if you are in a direct action as a homeless person and you actually like have embedded yourself in a community on the streets, it takes a lot to uproot yourself and then to do something so blatantly political. Like you're going to be, you're losing a lot. You're putting yourself at risk. Well, also practically, right? You're, you're, you might have a decently comfortable spot, stable spot where you are. You might be giving that up to go to this other thing that might get shut down it in a couple down. days and then right. you're totally out of a spot. Right. 
And so that started that reality started playing out the night of moving. Mm-hmm. And then what also played out was just the the, the crisis that a lot of people were in. Um, mm-hmm. That this life happened to happen, and so we moved in. We oh gosh, and that first night, one, two. And we also moved in RVs and campers. One, two, three, four, five. We moved in three like vehicles, RV campers, and then mm-hmm. two folks in tents. And then started constructing the houses that were pre-built and put them together. And then we started building three more houses. Hmm. And um, then we just had an open waiting list. At the By the end of the two weeks, we had, I don't remember the number, but it was more way way well into the hundreds like 130 something 140 people signed up to move in how would how would that i'm curious about how did that um take place was it did you have people just walking up to you there and we're like how do i get on a list and you're just like boom let's write you down or was there yep well we had our agreements um the agreements that were set between the original folks who wanted to move in and you know the advocates who were helping make this happen Mm. Um, and it was like really, you know, like basic agreements of just respect yourself and respect others. Yeah. Leave, leave, leave your way of life outside the gate and right. walk into a new kind of life. I remember one of the big ones was substance, no substances no on substance. site. That right? first one was a clean and sober site. Right. Um, and the entire time when people walked in to live on that land, like they stopped doing drugs. Mm. Like we had lifelong drug, a- drug addicts like change. It was fucking beautiful. Um, because people wanted to change, but it's hard to get out of that lifestyle when you're surrounded by so much and just dealing, just coping with living on the streets. Yeah. It's not you. It's really hard to want to change your life when you're stuck in a certain way. So um, why did you? I'm curious about that one because that's a you know with harm reduction and you know that that's that's kind of a, a big a big choice uh, or requirement. You know, we we talked earlier about requirements and stuff. But why did you come up with that? How did that one come up? Maybe you didn't come up, but why did the group come up with that? Um, because we knew we were doing something that was against the law. Right. So we needed as little amount of problems and resistance. Any Anything that was going to be a reason to shut us down yeah. outside of, you know, the fact that we were trying to help people. That makes so, a lot of sense, yeah. So the biggest motivation is that because this is a political act, this needs to be clean and sober so that we don't jeopardize what we're trying to do or have a reason for them to look down on what we're doing. Right. Um, but in the end it was actually, you know, what people needed and wanted to change their lives. Mm. Like they just couldn't get off of drugs in the streets, but when they came into the safe place and then the thing is that the space was open to anybody. So we had people from all over encampments coming just to kick it, just to be out of their encampment and to be somewhere where they know there was going to be food. There was going to be water. There was going to be coffee. There's going to be someone to talk to, just a peaceful place. It was so peaceful on that land. So, um, wow. Yeah. And so you, how were you getting food in? I mean, were you doing your, your lumpia lady thing there? Um, we built a field kitchen out with the help of food, not bombs. And then we just had the community just showed up and started dropping off food cooked, uncooked. And then we would hook it up and we had set times for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then we had snacks, coffee, and water all day long. Wow. Like it was uh, the entire thing as it continues to be with the village, is just a labor of love. It is just the the, the most kind and loving acts um, happening is what brought it together. 
and what continues to like everything we do is just like people like just showing up with love yeah um, this reminds like oh, everything was donated like all you know once we got the pallets up then we needed to actually put real shit on the pallets you know uh-huh. all of it was donated um, we got a porta potty on site since the bathroom didn't work we got a porta potty on site that was donated by the community like people just really donated donated people were what you were paying for the servicing of it yes okay through and the so people of Oakland and people so people had put people in some would money drop money and we would go get pay for a porta potty and mm. We paid for like we've paid we paid for the first two months up front, and then Joe DeVries, uh, city administrator, czar of homelessness here in Oakland, he um, canceled it. He like threatened the company with something, and was I have never heard of a city being able to cancel a private contract, contract. like that. That's interesting. It was crazy. You paid two months up front. Yeah. Nice. Wow. And he con- he had them cancel it. That's interesting. Yeah. So this just. I'm picturing what you're saying, and I saw some videos of it. It reminds me a ton of what what went down in the Occupy camps, mm. um, you know, in, in downtown Oakland and other places. Hmm. Did how how much of that were you a part of? Some of that did you see some of that, and how much of that do you think inspired that action? Well, interesting enough, I was one of the people who started Occupy Oakland, and then later like changed it for Decolonize Oakland um, to stand right in line with your native brothers and sisters but um Mm. but i think really what most of us who organized that space and came in that space were inspired by was standing rock Mm. damn near all of us just came from standing rock standing rock remind me where where were we in that in that time no no i know that Uh but when what was happening was did it just happen at that it had already been happening um, by the time we started the village, I mean they were well under oh yeah, I like remember attack. Now. I remember it was well yeah. under attack by the time the village cr- was started. And so there was a bunch of people camping out there yeah. by this time, yes. and it was like a big thing at this yes. point, right? And people related it to Standing Rock. So Got I think, it. but I think all of us were inspired by Standing Rock. Right. What made this different than Occupy Oakland is that Occupy Oakland, um, although it was started by by folks who had been doing work in Oakland, who were born and raised in Oakland, and got taken over by like, like really well or well organized anarchists who were not from here, mm. and that completely diffused kind of for those of us who had been organizing in Oakland for decades, we had demands. Mm-hmm. Each of us from our different sectors had demands, and when this influx and how people in Oakland viewed the Occupy movement was as a as a primarily white middle class movement and to an extent that was true right and we're like well we're the town like so we can make this whatever it wants and like we still are a working class town and so when we started we started off with with demands we started off with folks who had been doing the work in oakland for so long but what it became was not the face of oakland with the village who started it off the organizers that were involved with that were organizers who had been working and organizing in Oakland for forever mm. and so that was a bit different and it maintained that mm. um can you tell me a little bit more about the decolonize Oakland shift you said that there was a you're part of the the original occupy mm-hmm. setup and then there was a shift to do to I had not, I had never heard about the decolonize Oakland yeah so a lot of um Mine. I mean, I know about de- decolonization. All that, yes, yes. Yeah. So there was a whole um, movement within the Occupy movement across the country 
to reframe it from occupying to decolonizing and it was a call made out from our native or indigenous brothers and sisters who were like you know you guys got to go deeper right like you're talking about occupying and that's what you're doing to us you're occupying mm. so if you're really talking about revolutionary change if you're really talking about breaking down this society what you need to look at is decolonization is this where that phrase started came into the the popular consciousness i don't know that's interesting it came out of the occupy movement i feel like albuquerque called themselves decolonized before we did I feel like other cities were doing it, and yeah. so it actually, you know, we j- kind of joined that push. And indigenous women, Ohlone women, Pomo women, um, you know, from who lived here in Oakland were the ones who raised that call. Wow, I didn't know that part of the, s- the Occupy story. That's yeah. really interesting. Wow. So there was a split at that moment where pretty much everyone from Oakland was down with it becoming decolonized Oakland and everybody who came to Oakland to be part of Occupy Oakland was like no we're sticking we're gonna diffuse the movement and we're like y'all just got here like we're listening to the native people who've been here since the beginning of time and the folks who now been living on Ohlone land all this time are actually aligning with the natives and then y'all just got here and you're totally against this that's crazy wow and then wow so what happened what happened from there i mean then well then i mean the camps got shut down and mm-hmm. and reopened right <laughs> yeah. and then um i mean i think the thing is that the work the work out of decolonize i mean decolonize or occupy oakland never stopped like i said like we had always been doing the work this became an opportunity to like lift our work up in a national you know right framework and also start talking about racism and classism which prior to occupy oakland you did not hear those words spoken on mainstream tv but all of a sudden you got cornell west on cbs news talking about classism and racism which was huge yeah no one talked about that stuff right so i mean we're the folks who were involved with occupy are still very much in in the trenches and stuff you know the people who were leading the fight against public education mona trevino and mike hutchinson they were part of occupy but they've also been organizing in oakland forever right um you've got you you know you got myself i'm still organizing um you got folks like uh kriya gomez who's been organizing at-risk youth at-risk women forever and she still is and she's also an educator so she also fights for education so there are the many of us who were part of that movement and then kind of was like oh this we looked at it we're like oh my god this became a wave of gentrification like this unknowingly occupy oakland became gentrify oakland all over again that said i mean i gotta say <clears throat> for me at least for my i'm 36 you know that was seemed like a really big moment in in our country politically and and locally and um and like you said i think it it really it inspired a lot of people to do projects that we've seen after that Mm -hmm. um i'm curious now i want to learn a little bit more about some of this backstory of of the people that were politically active pre-occupy and you told me about some interesting knowledge about where we were standing actually we don't have to get into oh, the yes. we're, we're in we're in deep west oakland right now and and um, lower bottoms and you know the history of of this site which yes. i'm actually really interested to, yes. l- to learn about so this piece of land is part of a larger piece of land that spans across pine street um known as the black dot 
a black new world and across the street too. So it was spearheaded by this brother by the name of Marcel Diallo, um, who was the founder of the Black Dot Collective, which started on E1 Foe in the dubs. And it used to be a spot we used to all kick it at like late night. Um, they did, I remember, like my memories were like just like late nights there with ciphers and having political conversations and art always happening. They used to do this thing called church on Sundays, and it was just this daytime dance party with waffles. What? Like I remember this stuff from this like this is what in the nineties, eighties, okay. and it was all like Afrocentric, um, super like self determination, just super cult- holding down cultural stuff. Like you know, just it was beautiful, and mm. then that collective, um, you know, morphed into different locations, and then finally landed here. And Marcel was able to get several of the buildings. There was a storefront across the street, several of the houses. He purchased this land and these yes. buildings. This land used to be his tilapia farm. Right. So this was the tilapia farm. And then the houses had different names. I remember Cornell Cor- Cornelius Bell was one of the names of the houses. Hmm. Each of the houses had a different name. And everyone who lived there were like black artists, black movers and shakers. How did... So what I've read about Marcel is that he was a slam poet. Mm-hmm. I've also heard from a neighbor that he his uncle is like a, a actor. Uh, I don't know about that. But my big cr- question is, how did he get all this money to to buy all this land? I guess maybe back then it was super cheaper. cheap. It was hella cheap. It was like hella nobody cheap. came to the this this part of Oakland is called the Lower Bottoms. Right. It's not the bottoms. It's lower than the bottoms. Okay. There was nothing here. Um like there was nothing here. No one came here. No one wanted to be here. So he bought the land before gentrification hit this neighborhood. Right. Um when it was nobody wanted to be here. So he was like we're going to make something out of nothing. But this was also like a a what like a, a a long time black neighborhood, right? Because yes. it from the from the forties, right? Yeah, I mean, so I'm I still want to learn the history, but the little bit that I've heard is like that this was like the end of the the train line, mm-hmm. and so all the Pullman porters um, started buying ho- homes here. here. Yes, and um, and then there's maybe there's a connection to the port. A lot of port workers mm-hmm. lived here. A lot of port workers. Um, a lot of railroad workers. The Pullman, Porter, Pullman Porters are like the ones who established, definitely established this as a black neighborhood. Right. Um, and then there was, I, I, sorry, I, uh, I talked to somebody when I was walking dogs back here a couple, couple like a year or so ago. She used to live here as a kid, and she was telling me like, you know, this is like a big Black Panther stronghold, and then a lot of um, black Muslims mm-hmm. were around here too. So mm-hmm. it was like, uh, yeah. There was there was a lot of that history too, yep, and then just down the street on Seventh Street, that was the Harlem of the West. Mm. So all of Seventh Street was right. um, you had nightclubs, jazz clubs, restaurants. Right. I mean, people like famous people used to come to Seventh Street yeah, to perform. perform. Right, some of yeah. the biggest biggest yes. names in, in like blues, the fifties, jazz, in rock. Right. Yeah, came to Seventh Street. So this was a very vibrant community up until, you know. Um, even er, during the 60s and 70s, when people, when the, with the, you know, the creation of the Black Panthers and the need to, for black folks to protect themselves from the police, it was still vibrant. There was still, like, a total lack of resources, you know, as this country teaches, teaches treats black people. Right. Um, but despite that, folks were able to create something vibrant for themselves 
Um, and that all died when crack was brought into the neighborhood right. as a way to like <coughs> destroy black folk, black right. communities, vibrant black communities, right? Organized black communities, right? And that, and so then post the crack epidemic, you've got you've got this scenario where it's just like probably a lot of violence around here. A lot of violence, a lot of um, no jobs. Poverty. Poverty, uh, just all this, um, the redlining that happened, the, the what do you call it, De-in- disinvestment right. into the neighborhood. So people were totally left to fend for themselves. Nobody wanted to be here. Right, food desert, still, it's still, still a food, food desert. desert. Yeah. Yes. yeah, so that makes sense. And so he got this land super cheap. Mm-hmm. How did he get the money, though? He's still got to get some money to do this, right? I don't know. I don't know how Marcel got the money. Anyway, just yeah. curious. So, okay, so he bought all this stuff, and and. What I read was that he had a vision for a, it was like, it was, he was speaking to the gentrification story, right? It was like, this is going to be a place for For black folks, black folks yes, to live and to thrive. Yes. Yep. And then he even started, um, he was part of a group of folks, um, other black artists that live in the, in the neighborhood they, and black, uh, black homeowners who have been here, you know, had owned their homes for generations, started their own black neighborhood association here and then when the rich white folks started moving in they started their own neighborhood association and the city aligned themselves with the brand new neighborhood association of the white folks um and listened to their concerns like did all the planning with them and completely ignored like literally ignored the black neighborhood association that's interesting so this was (coughs) this is all in the 90s in the 90s okay okay and so he, how far, th- when you walked in here, you, you immediately were like, I've been here and I know I this. I when I, when I, when I came to the front. So, so what did you, what did you, paint me a picture of what it was like back then on this land when he was controlling with it the was tilapia a farm. tilapia farm. So this corner right here was the tilapia farm. So, and this was aquaponics, right? Yes. And it wasn't super built out yet. Like when he lost all this property, this was still being developed. So like he had the houses were done. They were finished. The, the the storefront across the street. There was a cafe across the street. Right. The I think two or three houses over here already had people living on it. But this was the latest brainchild, okay. and it hadn't been fully developed yet. But there were tilapia up in that thing. So he had he had fish moving <laughs> through there. there. Fish up in there. And, right. And, yeah. and and aquaponics real quickly because I I used to mess with it too. Is ironically is uh yeah you move water through uh. A system where the the plants clean the water for the fish um, from the fish poop, and so that's uh, fertilizer for yep. the plants, and it's a nice, and yeah, that's crazy that he was doing that in the nineties. In the nineties, yeah, before people were really doing it. Yeah, right? it's still kind of a. What this thing. also reminds, but I was here a few years ago. Um, I think it was before you guys got here, but um, you know there was murals along the perimeter and yep. around this neighborhood that had been around forever. Yep. Um, and some new folks came in and started just dis- desecrating the the stuff. Well, yeah. So we well we've been here about five years. So we were connected to that a little bit, uh, okay. not intentionally. Um, okay. I mean, I was the part of the group of kids that came. I brought all my students out here. Yeah. With like um, um, artistic, who's a, a graffiti artist, uh-huh. Isu, who lives down the street too, um, and we repainted everything on the front your front entrance i mean and now it looks changed uh-huh. but the murals that were around this whole perimeter got desecrated and we came back to clean them up 
Wow. And um, yeah. The that murals. Was, I think my kid was probably around ten or eleven, so that was like seven years ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that was before we got here. So that's interesting. Yeah, the murals were intriguing. Um, by the time when we moved in in uh, 2015, the there was like there was some interesting um, prose and and imagery um, that made you think. And and right in, in the front of ours, th- there was uh, it said Eternal Sunshine Kingdom, and that's actually mm. what we called this place for in the beginning was the mm. Eternal Sunshine Kingdom because it was like a, a kind of an interesting phrase. Mm. Uh, and then. But then it seemed like not just us, like in general, like taggers and stuff went over it. So there was like, it wasn't a cohesive piece, but you could tell that there was at some point. And um, and then just, yeah, randomly a friend of ours, a friend of a friend who who's a tagger was like, oh, I'll, I'll do a cool mural for you guys. And it was not what we thought he was going to do. And he just did his <laughs> his thing and. You know, um, we need to get on that actually and get a cool intentional mural. But yeah, so okay. But aside from the mural, so so this site, um, big piece of land was was his next brainchild, and then he lost. So he didn't really get to fully realize it before he lost control. Yeah. Of this, and And I don't remember all the story of what happened or what, how he lost this. But I know that even after he left and even after he lost it, like the folks that were still a part of Black Dot didn't leave. Like they were still. So both those houses there were still being occupied. We were still doing parties out of them. I would do my loompy thing out of them. Well, yeah. Boots Riley lived in. He I was part of Black ye- Dot. The yellow house there. And I don't know if he still does, but. I don't know if he does either. I know he has a recording. Stu- he had a recording studio on there, too. I don't know if he still has it. Wow. But um and then if you go further down cuz I I used to walk dogs down here. If you go further down to um past on Pine uh past 9th Street there is a building and it says or it used to say I haven't been there in a while. It says New New Black World. New Black World. Yeah. Yep. That was another part of the land. Crazy. Yeah. So what so was people were just trying to really, you know, buy up the old black neighborhood and revitalize it right. with you know with no help from the government yeah just trying to do it themselves wow. so there was definitely a movement a whole bunch of folks a whole bunch of folks came into oakland like black folks came into west oakland to try to be part of that movement and really hold down this historic uh district yeah so, yeah and i guess <coughs> maybe we need to talk to marcel to figure out what happened why yeah his vision didn't get fully realized yeah i know he uh, from what i remember um, like he like they came after him for taxes, mm. right? And like just completely destroyed him. And and somewhere in this, uh, there was the big financial, the big kind of real estate mortgage crisis. Sure. And the um, and I think that's when he ended up selling the land to the, because now, the these two space big lots are owned by like seven different people. Wow. Um, that's crazy and yeah they're like nine different parcels wow, wow. but i but i think he owned them all as nine At different parcels point. and then they uh, yeah i'm not sure on that but that's crazy yeah interesting and then yeah anyway so that's cool <laughs> cool history that. of the bottoms lower bottoms yeah, yeah wow um okay so fast forward to you guys get shut down in in Marcus Garvey Park, mm-hmm. what? 
How did you find out about the shutdown? Was it was it a surprise or or did you get warning? Oh no, warning? Joe had started. I mean, the the day Joe Joe showed up like four days into it, and was very like, "You can't do this," and I'm like, "Why not? <laughs> There's not enough housing for people, and you're not doing anything. So, do something." But no, it was not a surprise, and um. We got an eviction notice. First, he did what he does currently does, goes into an encampment and declares it illegal and unsafe. And we're like, are you kidding me? Like, this shit is so organized and clean. And if you go to an encampment literally 20 steps away, come on now, Joe. You know this is a political act. You can't justify what you're doing based on, like, saying this is unsafe and illegal because you could say that about every encampment, but you don't. You choose to ignore them is what you're choosing to do. And so, you know, we rally people to City Hall, and, you know, we're like, you're going to need to stop this. And then the eviction went forward anyway. They showed up with a bulldozer, dozens of public works folks, and 80 police in riot gear. At eight in the morning. Wow! And some of the residents were still asleep in their tents and houses. Um, like I'll never forget um, Mama Nancy, who is exactly where she was when we first. So when when before we moved in, Mama Nancy was living at the dead end next to uh, the park, mm-hmm. and that's where she's been ever since. Hmm. She's actually moved a block down to another dead end, but she's basically. Like, her situation hasn't changed, mm. you know? We had her in a house. And she hadn't been in a house in years, and she couldn't even believe that she had a house. Like, it was such a beautiful, like, wow. But they literally kicked in her door while she was asleep, and literally, and she's a senior citizen, and they dragged her out of her bed screaming um, and then bulldozed her house. And she sat there and watched her house getting bulldozed. Um, but they spent about $20,000, I believe, um, on destroying everything which is crazy and those folks are all still homeless everybody who was housed is homeless and back using drugs again and um i think one person is actually in a better situation but that's because she won a lawsuit um but everyone else is you know still on the streets um Hmm. and not much has changed um that yeah i and i remember watching some of the videos of that and going to the meeting after which i'd love to talk a little bit about uh but but yeah that idea of like people put in money and time and effort to do this and then just watching it all just kind of get taken down crumble yeah it was yeah it was it was really rough to see and and i can see how it like makes it emotional Mm -hmm. um i think for me that that moment you know, because I was documenting uh, land action at the time, and that's actually mm. why I was at that meeting that yeah. you um, showed up and and kind of like, I I think that was the first yeah the meeting right after the the shutdown in City Hall, because um, Kelly and Patrick who were part of land action were were there, um, and I wish I had documented that because it was pretty powerful that mm. whole scene, but um, that they were land action real quick was 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 taking over. Deep, um, you know, defaulted properties mm-hmm. that were going up to the tax auction before they would go to the tax auction and yes. trying to squat them yes. to house homeless um, activists. Yes, and uh, they were dealing with a court case around that effort, and that's what my documentary was about. I need to finish it, but 
they you you kind of made brought that what they were doing to a, a much more public and more I guess like understandable level in my mind. And I think it was it was that you were basically planting a flag on mm-hmm. public land. Literally. We had a flag. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> yes. And saying like this is ours. And and I think in my mind that was what motivated the city sort of power structure to say no we got to stop this now because we don't want mm-hmm. this to become a thing yeah and i and that was post occupy which was also about planting a flag yes but you did it i don't know i think maybe it was less it seemed at maybe i don't know it seemed less political than occupy and less temporary than occupy because it was like wooden houses and it was like this we want to be here for yeah. the long term i don't know i'm just yeah I mean, we really thought we were only going to last a weekend. Like, all that was just to make a statement. Right. But um, I think what the threat was is that it was in direct contradiction to the direction the city has been going, which is to develop for folks who don't even live here yet, Mm. who pay $4,000 for a Mm one-bedroom. You know? Like, what the fuck? So because we were in direct opposition, and then we did, it was a lot of shaming involved. Like, we really shamed the mayor. Like mm. that was not like our intention, but that's what happened. Was this Michelle Kwan? No, this was still Libby. Libby was still the oh. mayor at the time. Oh right, okay, okay. And so we made Libby look bad, and she, and she's very. I've learned that she's a very petty woman, and she's a bully, and um, she still is petty. Like she will never forgive us for showing her up, and for doing something that she refused to do, and that the irony is like now the tough sheds are this like solution that she's pushing, but. Where do you think she got that idea from? And it's like the Tough Sheds is like this morphed and, and mutated version of the village. Like even right. the numbers that she used got, were straight off of like our, what the numbers we were using. Yeah. It was crazy because then she would start like doing sound bites that were off of our press release. Like, oh, my God, this woman has no shame at all. Like literally has no shame. But I mean, it's it's a good idea, right? The idea and, and the term village. Mm-hmm. And the idea of like multiple people living in these small units, these tiny homes mm-hmm. um, with shared resources, this is a great idea. With on-site services, that's what they missed. Right. And then our thing was also always was letting, leading to permanent housing. That we were trying to get people ready to get into permanent housing. Because mm-hmm. if you've been homeless or unemployed or in crisis and trauma for years, and I give you a set of keys to the house so you have no way of making money you're not you know you're gonna lose that house it's right. like if you had a set of keys to a kid who doesn't know how to drive a car right. you're like okay figure it out like they're right. gonna end up crashing that fucking car so the idea was like and it still is is that we're here to help people get into permanent housing there is no plan for permanent housing which is the biggest problem right i mean even with the millions that the city is spending on homelessness everything is temporary they have no intention of building permanent homes for homeless people here right. which is crazy yeah. So, you know, our thing was always kind of like, we need this needs to be part of the solution towards permanent housing. You just can't suddenly build permanent housing for folks who've been on the streets for years and think that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how did we get from that shutdown and that meeting and that that visceral reaction that yes. took place, which I think kind of s- set well that set the motion for hog the development of hog got a lot of people activated how did we get from there to the village being given 
in like legal language i remember reading the village is assigned this spot on east 12th street how did that happen so through advocacy through constantly showing up and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and getting the shelter crisis declaration installed um two years ago actually to around the date we're at now it's actually i think tomorrow it uh, expires really yes however we're what is the first yeah this is the 30th and tomorrow's tomorrow's the first of october Okay, so I believe it goes to city council tomorrow to get reinstated, and it's a more powerful. Like, I have asked the council members to be like, so the shelter crisis declaration, and we flagged it when it happened, is like it was written by the administration, and the re- administration repeats themselves. I mean, that's how important this was to them, that this that any decision after this for the shelter crisis so solely sits in the hands of the administration. We do not have to go back to city council. Hmm. And when they passed, you know, the day, the night they passed it, we all flagged it like, you. this is dangerous. There needs to be checks and balances. Do not give this to the administration. They need to come back to you. There needs to be conversation so the public can come to you. When stuff comes to you guys, you are completely cutting off any kind of possible facade of democracy at this point, right? Right. And in hindsight, the council members who are realizing it was a bad decision, that is going, that's been amended into the the new shelter crisis declaration that'll be voted on tomorrow that the administration cannot just go and do whatever the fuck they want to do anymore. They have to come to city council. Mm. It needs to be discussed. It needs to be public comment. And the city council will make the final vote Mm. on the administration's plan. Cause up until now, every idea, the city council gave the administration a list of things that they were supposed to do, including giving us land, which they took away from us. (laughs) Um, and the city council, the, the administration hasn't done anything on that list except the RV parks, which they didn't start till like late last year, early this year. Um, so there's going to be a rewriting. Uh, there is a rewriting of that. And there's also going to include in that new de- declaration a no towing clause that mm. the, they cannot tow people until the solution is created. Include, and that solution looks like find a piece of fucking public land for people. Wow, that's interesting. And that's going to get voted on tomorrow? Tomorrow. Is there, is there going to be a hearing on it? Yeah, at city council. It'll oh, be at city council. What time is that? Um, 5.30, I believe. Okay. So the, it's been revamped. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we... Um, looked into so we're working with Nikki Fortuna Boss right. and Rebecca Kaplan right. on rewriting this ordinance and getting it reinstated but it will give more power and accessibility to these decisions that the administration is just doing without talking to anybody that no one likes um, wow so so <clears throat> like millions of dollars have been spent that with no accountability and they've all gone into tough sheds right and the people who've been in the tough sheds are back on the streets. Right. Like, it's crazy. The waste of money is crazy. So, but but before we get too into what's going on now, I, I, this is, I find it super interesting. Your story, what happened with you and the village, is like a great kind of case study on how to get things done, get, get things done I guess, or get, get the ball moving Mo- politically yeah. from like a really powerful action and then that that powerful mm-hmm. consistent follow-up you it sounds like what i'm hearing and starting to understand is that you you were able to get on the side of some of the the, the council mm-hmm. right or the community board yes i always mix those two up yes uh, kaplan was one of your big um champions mm-hmm. and that was able to push the administration or the the power structure of the city to it made them do something right but what they're doing is very cosmetic 
right. right? It's not really a solution. It's like putting a Band-Aid on like a gun wound from an AK-47. Right. Like it's not doing anything. It's actually causing more harm than anything. It's not effective. It's a waste of money. And it's not dealing with the problem, which is there is a complete lack of affordable housing in Oakland. Yeah. And so people who normally were renting or owning have nothing. Right. So, yeah, I was always trained under the idea that direct action gets the goods. So we got we got the ball. I like what you said. The We got the ball moving, but we're still we don't still still see the goods like there still is no permanent housing for working class folks and lower low income, no income right. in the pipeline. Right. I think if anything, we got like 200 units. But when you compare that to the 50,000 units that have been approved for market rate and above right. and the 1000 units for people, who, affordable housing, which is 79,000 and below. Right. Then you got like 200 units for working class people. But you've got like our estimates is that there's 14,000 people homeless in Oakland. Yeah. If you look at um, the county has a, the the um, health care for the homeless program, which actually deals with homeless people all day long. Right. And so they're constantly doing intake. Right. Whereas the county's point and count program, which counts how many homeless people they see on one winter night in the middle of the night. Right. So they they base everything that they do with homelessness on that one night count. The and, point in time count, right. Right, which is not adequate and it is undercounts. And what's the latest count on that? That homelessness in Oakland has doubled in two years. Oh, right. That but it's gone up by 48%. And it's like, what, something like 5,000 yeah, people or something like that? Yeah, are in the streets. Yeah. But if you look at the um, Alameda County Health Care for the Homeless Program, which deals with homeless people every day mm-hmm. and therefore counts who's coming in, and they don't double count, they just have a count of this person has come in, oh, here's a new person person whatnot mm. according to their count there's at least in 2016 there was like 9,000 people on the streets okay wow um so and their numbers have like there there's at least 14,000 people is what we're talking about for the county for oakland for oakland and oakland has the largest number of homeless people in the county right but so the point in time one night in, in january in the middle of the night counted 4,000 people mm. but if you look at the the data from the organization's within the county that work with homeless people every day you're talking at about 14,000 people 14 okay yeah. yeah that's interesting i i kind of i was working with a number more like 7,000 but but i didn't know about that alameda county count that's uh, a like 14,000 it, it just yeah. came out no the count doesn't say 14,000 the count says that there's 4,000 and that homelessness has gone up 48%. So they're saying that 2 years ago they counted 2,000 people in the streets yeah and that this last year they've counted 2,000 more people in the streets. Gotcha. But looking at the data of Alameda County's um, Healthcare for the Homeless program right. that counts people every day, their entire year cumulative is showing at least 14,000. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting. In Oakland alone, not Alameda County, just Oakland. So, where do, so maybe you could make the case for why... I, I was talking to... A, someone uh who works in 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 real estate um development and and she said she went to a meeting where this real estate agent spoke to all these realtors and said uh you know you know in the hunger games that that part of the the city that was like just for the wealthy that's what oakland's gonna become Wow. And it was like super blatant. And there's people wow. that are that are pushing for it, right? So wow. so what is the what is the argument What's the argument to them, like to to try to win them over, to convince them that poor poor people people should be able to live here cheaply? 
I don't know if there's an argument for them because they're totally driven by a money-based model for housing and development. They're not looking at housing as a right that everyone should have. They're looking at housing as like, let's make the most money as possible. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be looking at housing and development from that paradigm, then you're never going to think that everyone affords housing because it's become a commodity and not a basic human right. Right. If you can afford it, you can live here. Yeah, but if you can't... I was told actually by one of the the, the, the architects of the gentrification of um, you know downtown, um, what they call... Kono that was West Oakland like if you look at the district map it's still part of West Oakland but they renamed it Kono oh I've never heard that which Kona. is crazy because it's supposed to stand, stand for like Korean Northgate neighborhood or some shit like that uh. and there was always Korean and black folks living there but they didn't separate themselves and so when the the architects of gentrification for that neighborhood decided to name it a Korean neighborhood they like they be how do you do that when like half of, you know, and it still isn't really a Koreatown. I've seen Koreatowns. That is not a Koreatown, you know, much love to my Korean people, but come on now. <laughs> and it, what it did is it, it divided a community that was very much down for each other. Yeah. You know, the blacks and the Koreans in that neighborhood of West Oakland, like got along. They were having kids together. Mm. And this renaming of that neighborhood totally ignored the West Oakland history of that neighborhood and mm. then also ignored the black folks mm. who were still the majority. Like, mm. there's not that many Koreans in Koreatown to call it Koreatown. Mm. It mm. was Koreans and blacks living in harmony with each other, mm. you know? So, but the dude who, like, helped orchestrate and rename these um, places, his name is Steve Snyder. Um, he um, had told me, we're building a new, um, we're building a new sandbox that if you can't play by the rules, then you don't get to play by the sandbox. Mm, I'm like, but you just got here. Like, you bum rush the sandbox. Who the hell are you to bum rush the sandbox and put up new rules without even talking to the people who've been playing in the sandbox? Mm. Like, you kicked us out of the sandbox and put up a fence and put up new rules. That what is what does he what does he mean by new rules? I mean, is it? Um, I think he took it as just like things are changing. So if you can't get with the changes, then you can't be here anymore. Right. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants it a safe, you know, clean place to live, but uh, does it have to be at the expense of, you know, making, you know, 80000 a year or more? Right. Or does it have to be at the uh, cost of people losing their homes? Right. Right. Like, I think the inherent thing about this model of development is that it's based in displacement. Like, it's the clear closest thing to colonization, you know, that we've seen since colonization mm. where it actually r- involves getting rid of the existing population in order for people to settle. Mm. Yeah. Um, and not all forms of development do that. Like there are so many other forms of development we can be looking at that don't require the elimination of the people already there. But mm. gentrification requires that the population be eliminated. Hmm. And what, and what are some of the, what are some of the solutions or some of the development sort of strategies or frameworks that, that you feel like we should be working towards? Well, on a real practical level, if you look, so the city has set goals for their market rate and above market rate housing, and they've also set goals for their affordable housing, and they've set goals for deeply affordable housing. Right. And to date, since they set these goals you know, years ago, the city has exceeded their market rate and above market rate housing by 300%. Mm. And for their affordable housing and below affordable, like deeply affordable housing, they've only reached 5% of that goal. 
So I think part of it is like stick with your goals. You've mm-hmm. already done, you've exceeded this kind of housing right. by 300%. Right. And the housing that's deeply needed, right. you've only hit 5% of your mark. Right. So how about we just shift? Can we shift? Can y'all focus on that? Right. You've done this. Let's, I think there needs to be a shift. Right. And there needs to be... And people, the people who are holding the resources, the land, the development money, um, whatnot, they need to actually stop looking at housing as a commodity. They right. actually need to look at it as like, okay, we've done a disservice to Oakland. We haven't reached our, our affordable housing and deeply affordable housing goals. Let's step back and actually handle this that we've completely neglected, but they don't have the will to do so. Right. And then you'll have people like Joe DeVries being like, well, there just isn't enough land to do all that. Or just, you know, no one wants to do that. There's no money in that. As a public servant, the last thing out of his fucking mouth, out of any of their mouths, needs to be when they hold public resources, the last thing they need to be talking about is what kind of profit this is going to be turning. They're public servants. They are paid for by taxpayers' money to take care of the public. And over and over the past several years, the people of Oakland keep on saying housing and homelessness are their number one priorities. So listen to the people of Oakland. You know, they're not saying market rate housing is their number one priority. They're saying like regular ass working class people getting housed is their number one priority. Right. And they're being ignored by the folks who have all the resources in their hands. And from from 2016 when you did your first action to now, the amount of visibility of encampments, the, the, the problem of of everyday working people losing having their rent doubled and just you know it's actually kind of more like almost like culturally acceptable now to live on the streets than it was back then if i don't know because there's no other way to go yeah i think there's still um you know that negative stereotype that goes with it yeah you know and there's still like for folks in the street there's still a level of shame for sure you know for sure um i think what has been normalized and accepted which blows my mind i mean i played with it for a while when i was paying for that stupid basement for a thousand or half of a basement for a thousand right is this that it's acceptable that a room or you know a, a, a half of a basement that floods it's okay for it to be a thousand because that's normal. What's been normalized is the rising rent. Like we're just supposed to accept it because, you know, that's just the way the market works. Great point. Yeah. And I think that we actually need to be critical about that and state that it's actually not normal. It's unfair. It's unjust. And what the hell? Like, well, and also it's not, it's not, it's not feasible (laughs) for a lot of people. And so people literally like, it's like, do I eat? Do I take care of all these other basic mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. or do I pay this rent? And okay, well then I'm I'm not gonna pay this rent, and I'm gonna either move to another state, another country, or onto the street, or you know, yeah, figure out how to make it work. And then there's like the logic of finding that saying, well, why don't you just move somewhere else? Right. You know, almost like, well, who told you to move here mm-hmm. and raise the rents? Mm-hmm. You know, and. Like for myself, you know, I'm almost 50 years old. I can't start over. When I was in my 20s, sure. But how do I, I've had a business here in Oakland for 30 years. I don't even have to do marketing for it. Like I get phone calls and gigs all the time without ever having to put myself out there because people know who I am here. Even even though most of my community is gone, most of my community has been displaced, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, How, as a 50-year-old woman, do I relocate somewhere else and start from ground zero? I can't do that. That doesn't work that way. I don't yeah. have the energy that I had 30 years ago. Yeah. You know? 
and, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And you and so you found uh, I I yeah we're we're running out of time so we'll we'll gloss over some of the other village iterations though they're fascinating to to, to unpack. But you I'm curious about you found uh, another way around this to stay in the city uh, and not you know pay all of your rent to you know into the air. Mm-hmm. Um, can you and so and it involves. A home on wheels. Yes. And uh, not paying rent. Yes. Can you can you bl- uh, yeah. unpack it for us? So we have been homeless for almost two years now uh, when my landlady wanted to double our rent. And I fought that. And then so she slapped me with an illegal eviction and I fought that. Mm. And then she started harassing not only me, but my child, mm. who was 16 at the time. And had people, had men in the neighborhood, in the in her community, not her neighborhood, the neighborhood, but men within her community, um threatening my child and Mm. so that became like you know what fuck it like karma's gonna get you karma did get her she almost lost her house Mm. so um amongst other things but um so we um were able to get a a camper which was where we live now and um i actually we took over another piece of land in deep east oakland to open a village for um that was centered with women with children Mm. Or women with families, and that lasted s- several months before we were evicted. This was like the village 3.0, yes. in a way, right? It yeah. was the third version of the village. Um, and we lasted, but that was also the village that kicked off the trend to start suing the city for evicting encampments and violating our constitutional rights. Ah, um, so there's a lawsuit. There's four lawsuits right. against and the city of Oakland. But your, your third... Your village 3.0 is part of that lawsuit. It kicked it. Our village 3.0. Uh, it was called Housing and Dignity Village. Right. So Housing and Dignity Village was the first village to sue the city of Oakland, ah. and we have three other encampments that we're working with that are also suing the city of Oakland. And I've just been collecting declarations. I have more than a hundred declarations. Declarations are like legal statements of people's testimonies right um all those folks can each have their own lawsuits if they wanted to the problem is we don't have enough lawyers or enough folks who feel ready to actually you know represent themselves in court but i'm still collecting these declarations because if anything they help the other four lawsuits which we hope is gonna the, the point of the lawsuits is to change policy yeah is to change the way the city does it um and it's fucking hard work because Hopefully with the shelter crisis declaration getting changed, getting amended, it'll remove some of the power um, that the administration has pushed onto people. For shutting down encampments. encampments. And not be and throwing away people's property and right. not providing people with adequate shelter after the encampments get shut down. Mm. Um, but yeah, right now we're living in a camper that and we're located um, where we were kind of, you know, moving around, moving around, moving around because we always got moved by the cops. Mm. But we've been able to kind of situate ourselves in a location. um, Still on the street. Still on the streets. But you're not having to move all the time. No, because I've made friends with all the parking folks. And also I've made friends with all our neighbors. And um, we keep the... We keep the whole area clean, um, not just, you know, our our situation, like where we're staying at. But, you know, and just it's about, you know, we want house folks to be good neighbors to homeless folks. But homeless folks also need to be good neighbors to house folks right. and work as community. So um, just, you know, being a good neighbor, whether I have a house or not, I'm still going to be a good neighbor. And you do have a house, I would argue. I, on, we have. Yes, we do. I mean, that's one thing. 
Yes, like camper life is very much like living in a small studio. That's yeah. how I feel about it. You just move it, move it. Yeah, we yeah, just it's move a movable it. Movable studio. Yep. Yeah. So, but I think like being being a good neighbor is crucial, um, and building those personal relationships with your house neighbors is crucial if you're going to be living curbside. Yeah, and I'm I'm really excited about um, learning about what what you've able been able to accomplish because it sounds like it's it's not just you; it's multiple people in this community in this kind of pop-up community yes. on in the commons but not you're not cramping anybody's style and you're, you're finding a way to coexist yes. in good faith yes. and that's that's what i think you know we need to find more ways to do that where people can exist in their movable homes and their small little square footage mm-hmm. not be a public health risk not you know be an impact on the broader neighborhood and mm-hmm. just kind of coexist with the other people in in other houses that are yeah. just in a different form yeah and i think you know i also want to tag stay that you know i also have a level of privilege one i i'm employed plus i have my own business plus i'm lighter skinned yeah um and so i'm able to navigate and i don't have mental health issues and right. i'm not a drug addict right um that all to say that folks who don't fall into the privilege that i have we need to support those folks like right. we cannot criminalize folks we cannot you know, shoving people around does not work. And maybe not everyone has the same kind of social skills that I have where I can be a good neighbor, but that doesn't mean that we are, we should be like harming and criminalizing and feeling like it's okay to not have to see that homeless person who clearly has a mental health issue. Right. Like really like people, if you see people that I just, to me, it doesn't make sense. If I see someone in crisis, I'm going to want to like, help them i'm not gonna sit there and call the cops on somebody or like criminalize them or hurt them even further right like if i see that somebody really needs help i'm trying to figure out how to help them yeah and so all that to say is just you know there's so many stories of why people are homeless and so many places that people are at while they're homeless and so folks need to be cognizant of that and you know work with compassion you know i might be highly functioning but the person next to me may not be, and that right. doesn't mean that they should be treated different than me. That's a great point, and that and that that you definitely get to the heart of this this touchiness. Uh, I mean, it's like there's, I mean, uh, maybe you know I, I phrased that wrong, but you get at something really meaty, and I think it's this idea of the functioning person who's doing this, and the, and the person who who's got a lot that they're working with. Um, on top of just because it's a it's it's a it's a feat to just do what you're doing right to live to live on wheels in general in, in this day and age with there's so much against you yes. but then when you're also dealing with the mental health or if you're dealing with some substance dependency mm-hmm. or you know trauma um it's it's really tough my my big question is and it kind of it's it circles around a lot of what you've been talking about is is you know, we know that we we d- I don't think in a, there's a practical reason to say, s- hey, city, stop like kicking people out and just pushing them from one place to the other for sure. But but they they also have a practical reason to be trying to do something right, mm-hmm. because we do have a lot of people that are just operating in bad faith or they're just so swamped with with their own stuff that they're they're not able to not be such a really big impact. Mm-hmm. And they're creating, you know public health risks they're you know just eyesores and and they're the ones that are motivating all of this harsh sort of reactionary power coming down on people acting in good faith Mm -hmm. so 
what is the you know if you were the mayor and maybe you will be in a couple of years hell no <laughs> uh never how would and you had like all the you know the political will to do this and mm-hmm. you were you know and the money was there how would you deal with these really really hard because i think everybody wants this answer mm-hmm. and and i know you've been working with these people the really the really scary method or the really you know scary person who just who's been in prison for 20 years who's got a heroin addiction how do you deal or the mental the the schizophrenic Mm -hmm. who's who's got who's got a samurai sword yeah well i think that there first there needs to be a whole kind of we're talking about addicts there needs to be a shift on how we look at addiction where it's addiction seen as a crime in the united states for sure but it actually needs to be looked at as mental health to sickness that, yes people are very sick and they're sick because of deep trauma usually or some or genetics whatnot like that we our approach to addiction needs to be totally different and then i think you said if i was the mayor what we've been saying this whole time free up some public land mm-hmm. to offer people not to hurt people but to offer folks and have each one be a different thing like one thing is for folks who are dealing with with substances and Mm -hmm. that on site there is on site support not what the city's doing with their tough shit there's no counselors on site Mm. there's no job training on site there is no like goal setting on site because Mm. there are no goals they want people to be there for six months and then back out somewhere not wherever but not where you were before Mm. you can go down on the next street here's a bus ticket out of oakland like there's no real solutions and so they're just shuffling people around from block to block or from city to city but i you know whether you but for each group you're talking about mental health and have a space where people have mental health services on site right addictions people have addiction services on site right um whatever the trauma may be whatever the issue might be like develop free up public land and put up very like services just it's so basic right? right And then have a pipeline for permanent housing, right? Which is what's totally not existing. Right. So literally, that's literally the tough sheds. All they do is recycle people in and out of the streets. They're not putting people in permanent homes. Right. So if I could, if I could rephrase what you said, and and kind of add in some of the stuff that we talked about offline, um, and this this aligns with some of the lessons I learned from talking to people in, at the Eugene um, homeless interventions, where they've been doing it for a while now. Mm-hmm is is separating people out by sort of their need categorized need whether that's fam homeless families or women who you know maybe don't it's it's not helpful for their healing process to be around a bunch of men um or men maybe specifically black men Mm -hmm. of the older set because there seems to be or 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 just elderly uh or just disabled or just dealing with opioid addictions maybe another one just dealing with meth addiction right. another one you know dealing with um just coming out of the the criminal injustice system right um and so you separate these different sites out kind of categorizing people if you will and because based on their needs, needs right right and then you p- and then you focus those needs in those sites and you a- address those needs and you address those yes. needs yeah and you provide support to address those needs right and you don't make this you're only here for six months right. like you have there's a there's a complete lack of understanding of like what transformation looks like for folks right and the from, timeline right right from the streets to to their feet right right and that nobody there's not you know part of the tough shed program is, is it's a cookie cutter 
you know, solution. Same with the navigation centers. These are all cookie cutter solutions, but the, not everyone fits into the cookie cutters. Right. And a lot of people, and like there isn't enough, there is nothing out there for mental health at all. Right. And if you have mental health and a drug addiction, you have even less options out there. Mm. And with, you know, even with folks with drugs, like folks who are dealing with drug addictions in the tough sheds, they're not being provide, provided with harm reduction programs. They're not being, being provided with possible recovery if that's what they want to do. They're mm. just really... They're literally, their encampments have been destroyed. They've been put into these tool sheds to be exited somewhere in right. six months. But there was no real, tra- the whole point that we have with the village is that these are going to be transformative places. Right. Temporary transformative places with no like real exit date right. to it. Because each individual person, as they should, have their own individual program. Right. Not a cookie cutter program that right. either you do this or you're out. Right. And I think, yeah, I yeah, and I think your criticism really gets to about how it's being done now versus how it could be and should be done. Gets to kind of the the will maybe and the the will to use money and time and land to focus on this based on the fact that these people are the least politically powerful and right. everybody loves to just ignore slash yes you know not worry about it it's not something we're gonna spend all of our money on right um but but you also mentioned this other really important point which is in this in this world where you're the mayor and you have the resources to do all this you have all these sites that are transition transforming people and then they they do need a place to go Mm -hmm. to be stable or to live stably um and that and that needs to be affordable Mm mm-hmm deeply affordable and that could work with whatever the city produces from here on out that is affordable right. it needs to be section eight yeah because people don't accept section eight anymore in oakland like they used to right. and you have a lot of people in the homeless encampments that have section eight vouchers that they can't use because right. no one will take it in oakland right and i think i was just listening to a podcast about the the latest state bills and and i think one of the bills that passed that's going to be potentially signed by Newsom if he wants to is a requirement that you can't you can't use section 8 as a that's that's like discrimination I guess yes, I think it's it is. so like uh, landlords have to accept section 8 but it's like I don't know it may not it, that law may not actually do much cuz there's probably you can come up with another reason to not accept to somebody people. maybe I don't yeah. know but I think there is some legal stuff yeah. happening on that but I think everything the city builds from here on out that is affordable needs to be section eight like there needs that needs to be built into whatever affordable housing programs the city uh, creates awesome if they do awesome okay and then i have one other question just uh maybe you could uh, like kind of unpack why it takes longer than six months potentially for someone to get kind of stabilized for me it seems like i've I've started to understand that there is a, and I and, and it's mirrored my own sort of journey in this, of um, of living in, in wheels and living in an RV and and dealing with the stigma, mm. um, that you put on yourself because mm. you understand that stigma. So I would imagine like if you are living in an encampment or you're living on the streets or if you're you're dealing with an addiction or something like that, you you get that that you're part of you've crossed the line into this other world and you're mm. not you're not a normal person and you're not quote-unquote a good person mm. and you self-internalize that yeah. this is my imagination but but again it's like something i've sort of felt and then you if you want to kind of p- 
part of your transformation is to try to get re have a rethinking of yourself right to get to feeling like you're a normal mm -hmm. upstanding citizen is that is that a big part of it would you say it and I think is there other stuff? No, I think that's part of it. And I think there's also this trauma piece. Yeah. Right? Um, or then you're talking about mental health. Like some folks, you can't put, a, a, yeah, you can't put a, a date on someone's personal transformation. Mm. That's like totally individual. Like, you know, how long it might take me to get up and out of the streets is going to be different than somebody else. Yeah. It's going to be different than you. You know, yeah. it's like each person has their own journey and if we're really talking about being compassionate, which is a word that the mayor and Joe like to use a lot, and coming from a more human perspective, well, then you have to understand that human beings are individuals and that people need compassion with their with their changes. And that a lot of folks out on the streets, six months ain't, ain't going to be enough. It just, yeah. it's not. It probably also has to do with how long you've been on dealing with it, right? Yes. Yeah. The longer you are out there, the more, because then for folks who've been out there chronically, then there's a whole other level of having to reintroduce people into society like literally mm -hmm. like because like everything you said people feel like they're not part of the society anymore they're an outcast right. they're not good enough so in addition to the trauma in addition to whatever people are dealing with you know that's keeping them in the streets right. on a mental or emotional or spiritual level there's also the reintroduction of people in society to hold down a job, right. you know, to to go to work every day, yeah. to have a bank account so that you can actually pay, you know, like to pay bills on time. Yeah. Like all of that to actually be able to to get out of a mind state that you're still in the streets. Um, like that was something that I, me that I struggled with with my ex because he's been he was homeless since he was 12. Wow. And I just witnessed firsthand like how hard it was for him to actually be housed mm. because he was so used to being outdoors and he was so used to just living off the seat of his pants mm. and I think I've seen that with a lot of folks is like you know even with myself like even though like there was a time in my life where like it was very normal to be in crisis mm. it was very normal to have like chaos mm. and so when I did not have chaos before like I was able to heal myself if I didn't have chaos in my life if I didn't have conflict in my life or crisis in my life it felt weird and your brain would kind of go towards, towards it i know exactly what you're talking because about because yeah. that was normal yeah and i know how to function in that it's comfortable right i can maneuver through that shit right but to be freed up of that stuff that's like wearing brand new skin yeah that's like what the fuck am i supposed to do with this yeah i don't understand this stuff i understand this right and so there's a whole re like a that's the word reprogramming right there's a reprogramming for folks who've been chronically homeless to actually get them literally back in a society and that is um i think it's a it's a it's a biological physical thing that takes time i i think about as i understand brain chemistry and 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 psychology like i think about it as like uh water and a r going down a river and mm. if the water is the thought going down a riverbed the more water that goes down that that thought it's like carving the the edges of the riverbed and so you have this avenue of like say trauma or sorry uh chaos or something that's just like for whatever reason childhood or circumstance like you've paved this like really deep riverbed there and you've got to do a lot of intentional sort of work to redirect the water into yeah. this other path that's like yeah. a little more healthy yeah and and that takes time yes time for you sending those water thoughts down there to carve out to that carve new, out path. The new path yeah and that's yeah that's a that's a 
a six big months doesn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Re- reprogramming. Yeah. yeah. Like you said. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, cool. Well, any, any final thoughts? I know I took way too much of your time, but I really appreciate it. No, it's my time. pleasure. Um, no, no final thoughts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people, um, get a hold of you, catch up to you, um, find out what you're doing? Um, we have a Facebook page, the village in Oakland, hashtag feed the people. And that's for the village work, which is a lot of advocacy legislation and taking up land and building houses for folks. Uh, we're always looking for volunteers. We're currently building the houses in an encampment since, you know, we went around taking public land. So now we're just working with the land that people have already taken and trying to um, upgrade people's conditions in the existing encampments. So if people want to get down with that, look, find us on Facebook. And then for, like, the services we provide in terms of hot meals and provisions, helping people get rides to where they need to go, we have a Facebook page for that called Feed the People Oakland. Um so you can catch us on either one of those pages. Awesome. Thank you, Nita Thank B. Thank you. If you've got ADU or Tiny Home questions, give me a shout at tinylogic.ninja.